Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Started. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. Finally going to start the text uh, tonight, Hebrews chapter 1. Um, so, like I said last week, we are, we're going to take this study of Hebrews very slowly, and we're going to go pretty in-depth. So, if I start talking too fast and jump over points or something like that, tell me to slow down, ask questions, you know, you feel free to, uh, to slow down as, as much as we need to, because there are um, 26 weeks until our summer series starts. And so we have 26 weeks to do 13 chapters, which is plenty of time uh, to teach the book of Hebrews. Um, so if I get to going too fast or I jump over a point or I don't make sense or something, feel free to ask questions. Um, we're we're, we're going to go as slow as we need to go. So Hebrews chapter 1. All right, so just kind of to recap from last week, it's probably, now this is the, this is the viewpoint we're going to look at the book of Hebrews through, okay? It's probably written around the time that Paul is in prison in Rome. It's probably a sermon that Paul preached that Luke took notes on and wrote down and sent it back to Jerusalem, okay? So that's the idea that we're going with. Um, I think that, that realistically makes the most sense given the text and, and um, the extra-biblical um, quotes and things like that uh, that do accredit an author and so forth. So, um, so that's, the kind of, that's the look that we're going to look at when it comes to Hebrews. But realistically, it doesn't, doesn't you know, it's not life or death. If, 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 if it's not a sermon preached by Paul written down by Luke, it's perfectly fine. Um, but Hebrews chapter 1. So in the book of Hebrews... There's a word that comes up more often than any other word. You, does anybody know that word? Faith. Not faith. Oh, well, I guess faith, yeah. Hebrews 11. Man. Okay, no. Um, there's a word, a, a concept. Let's do a concept that comes up more often than any other concept in the book of Hebrews. And that's the word better. There's 13 times that the word better is used. Um, at least 13 times in the book of Hebrews. Why, what would be the benefit, how do I want to phrase this? What would be the benefit of, of the writer saying that Jesus is better when he could just say, Jesus is the best, that's the end of it, right? Um, he, he doesn't use best, he doesn't even use he, he doesn't even use the, the concept of best. He uses the concept of better. And the reason is because can you be the best at something and fall short in some areas? Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, what we saw Monday night shows, you can be the best and still fall short in a bunch of areas. Like 44 of them or however many there was. Um, no, but... You can be the best and still fall short in some areas, right? But 
that's not what Hebrews is trying to do. Hebrews isn't just trying to point out that Jesus is the best. He goes through all of these different subjects. Angels, what we'll talk about tonight. Moses, um, the covenant that we have, the sacrifice that Jesus gave. He goes through all of these different subjects and says that Jesus is better than what we had in the Old Testament. Does that mean that the writer of Hebrews did not see a need and not see an importance in the Old Testament? No. Because, I mean, other than, well, it's kind of a tie between the book of Matthews and the book of Hebrews, but Matthew uses a few less times. Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament more than any other book. Matthew is right up there with it. So if the, book, if the writer didn't think that there was a need in the Old Testament and didn't think that there was benefit in the Old Testament, he wouldn't have quoted from it so often, right? And one of the topics we're going to talk about tonight, hopefully, is how he quoted from the Old Testament. Because the way that he quotes from the Old Testament gives us an idea of how people back then used Scripture and how we should use Scripture. Um, somebody get Colossians 3, 17. Colossians 3, verse 17. Alright, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in what? In the name of. What does it mean for something to be in the name of Jesus? By the authority, right? So, when we look at, if, if we're wanting to do something or wanting to say something, especially like the context of Colossians 3 is really worship services, right? But it really goes much farther beyond that. But if we want to do something religiously speaking, we, we need to find authority for it, right? We can't just make stuff up and say, well, God doesn't say not to do it, right? Because the fact is, can anyone point to a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not do heroin? No, there's not one, right? Can anyone find a Bible verse that says that we should give of our means on Sundays as the church? Yeah, what verse? Do you think of one? First Corinthians... Yeah, nine. Well, eight and nine. Yeah. Second uh, Corinthians eight. Um, tons of verses. First Corinthians 16, right? All these different verses say that we should give. Now, how do we give? As we prosper. Yeah, well, that's the mentality behind it, right? But I'm asking like real, real practical how do we give? At Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, how do we give? Cash? Checks? I don't guess money order. I mean, if you brought a money order, we figure out a way to pay, pay, cash it, right? Cash, checks, online, you can text, you can do all these different ways, right? Um, that's how we do it, right? Why do we have the authority to do those things? The Bible never says Thou shalt text to give, or thou shalt give online, or thou shalt write a check, right? Why do we have the authority to do that? It's an expedient, right? Because it helps 
to do an action that is required in Scripture, right? So that's how we usually look at the Bible, is we're looking for commands and what, the, what is that expedient? So we have a command to sing in Colossians 3.16, right? So how do we sing? What do we use to sing? We use songbooks. We use a, a, a mode of music called SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, right? Four-part harmonies. So sometimes you'll have part of the church singing, another part not, right? You know they didn't have that back in Bible days. They didn't have SATB back then. But those are expedients. So a lot of times we look at Scripture in light of what is the command? Is there an expedient? That's what we're going to do, right? Now, that's justified because that's one of the ways that the Bible says we're supposed to use the Bible. How do we do something in the authority of Jesus Christ? How do we, how do we know if something is in the authority of Jesus Christ or by the authority of Jesus Christ? By the Scripture, right? So that's one way we're commanded to use Scripture. But the Hebrews writer uses Scripture in a different way that can be very, very um, confusing. Okay? So let's start um, with chapter 1, verse number 1, and we'll get into this how he uses Scripture as we go along. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 1. Long ago... At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he, will be, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, He makes his angels winds and his ministers as a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of the righteousness, uh, sorry, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. All right, so let's stop right there, and then we'll, we'll pick up in verse 10 here in just a little bit. But chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. How? Did God speak in the Old Testament? Through the prophets, right? How? How did the prophets speak? How did Jonah speak to Nineveh? What did Jonah say to Nineveh? Do you remember? That's right. You have 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, right? The shortest sermon recorded in the Bible. He was really excited to preach that sermon. Um... How did God speak to the people of Israel in the day of, days of Moses? Through Moses. What about quickly, relatively shortly after Moses died? How did he speak through Moses? 
How do you speak through Moses, though? Moses had done what before he died? What did Moses do? He wrote down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? So you have, you have prophecy and miracles in Jonah. You have prophecy and, and speaking directly to Moses in the life of Moses. After Moses dies, God is speaking to the prophets or to the fathers through the writings. So you have all these different ways that God spoke. Now, how does the Jew in the in the Old Testament? How does the Jew in the Old Testament have a relationship with God? It's only through the writings and the words of the prophets, right? Because they don't get to go into the Holy of Holies, right? So they don't get to they don't get to see the Ark of the Covenant. They don't get to offer sacrifices. When they took a sacrifice to the temple, who killed that sacrifice? The priest did, right? The priest did everything. All Ray would do, if Ray lived in the Old Testament, all Ray would do is take his turtle dove and hand it to a priest, and that was it, right? Um, if th- They had a connection to God only through the prophets and the temple. They didn't have that one-on-one connection with God, right? That's the difference in the New Testament, in that we have a one-on-one connection with God, not like we can just you know, go to his house and sit down in his living room with him. But we have a connection with God because we're, we're closer to him than the Old Testament people. And so that's really what chapter 1, verse 1 is about. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the way they had an interaction with God was through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, the difference between the way that they had a relationship with God and the way that we have a relationship with God is verse 1 and 2 says their relationship was through who? The prophets. Who is our relationship through? Christ. Now, the catch is, if our relationship with God is through Christ, Christ is what? He is God, right? So we have a direct relationship with, with God. That's the difference that he's trying to point out there. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Um, Because he's equal with God, he has this this ability to create. He has this ability to to do these things that that were supernatural. Now, he's not making a statement about the deity of Christ yet. He's just reminding them. Right? They, they, these people, what religion are the people that read this book? After it's written, what religion are they? They're Christians, right? They had been what? They grew up what? Jews. But now they're Christians, right? So he's not proving something. That's like um, in Genesis 1.1. It just says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What evidence is given of the creation in Genesis 1-1? What evidence? Is there any evidence? Well, that's, that's Psalm 14-1, right? But in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't give any evidence. He doesn't give any backup. He just says, this is the truth, and that's the end of it, right? Because who is Moses writing Genesis 1-1 to? Jews. 
who already knew that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? He's not, not trying to prove anything. It's just there. In fact, realistically, the Bible doesn't make it a point to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes that we believe in the existence of God, right? Now, are there things in the Bible that teach us that the only way that God, the only way that there can be anything is that God created it? Yes. But when you're studying with somebody, you know, and you say, and they say, I don't believe in God, and you say, but the Bible says that, you, that God is real, what are they going to say? I don't care. I don't believe the Bible, right? Well, you should believe the Bible because the, the Bible says you should believe the Bible. Okay. So? Joseph Smith said, I should believe the Book of Mormon. That doesn't mean I'm going to believe the Book of Mormon, right? So, just because it says it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but he's making the assumption that everyone who reads this book already understands that God spoke to the people in the Old Testament by the prophets. God speaks to us today through his Son. He's just setting that as an assumption, okay? Now, verse 3. Here's where he gets into the argument that Christ is better than what we, what we used to have, okay? Somebody read verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 1, 3 and 4. All right, what translation is that? King James, that's what I thought. He is the brightness of his glory, or the radiance, ESV says radiance of his glory. The word glory um, is usually talked about in the Bible, like in, light, in, in, in words like light, okay? So somebody get, um, somebody get 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6. Right, so the light of the glory of God, right? So glory is often talked about as light. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 23 says, And the city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on it. This is talking about the church. For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, glory. So, the writer of Hebrews says, He is the brightness or radiance of the glory of God. Um, in the Old Testament, the uh, they they didn't know a lot in the Old Testament, did they? They didn't know. I mean, if you look at if you look at the um, just the the prophecies about Jesus Christ, 
Does anybody remember the first prophecy about Jesus in the Bible? What is it? But enmity, right? Right. Her, her seed is going to come and is going to deal a death blow to you, right? But you're only going to harm his heel, right? So he's going to crush your head, but he's, you're only going to harm his heel. That's the first prophecy about Jesus. Can you think of any other prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53, he's a suffering servant, right? He's led like a lamb before the slaughter, like a sheep without, uh, without a voice. So, um, so, in the Old Testament, they knew something was coming, but they didn't really have any idea what it was, right? I mean, when Jesus comes and they start hearing about the Messiah, what did the majority of the Jews at that time think the Messiah was going to do? Yeah, set up a, set up a government, overthrow Rome, and, and be there forever, right? A lot of people that think that that's what he was supposed to do in the first place, but they were wrong back then, and they're wrong now too. Um, so, they, they had this idea that something was coming, but they really didn't know what was going on. Is the glory of God talked about in the Old Testament? When they're walking through the wilderness, what did God lead them by? The pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by the day, right? And that was the glory of God. And then the, in the tabernacle, when they stopped and the Ark of the Covenant was placed into the tabernacle, the glory of God sat between the cherubim, right? The, the light of God. So they had this, this idea of light that God, you know, this, this idea of glory. But then when Jesus came, it wasn't, it wasn't this idea anymore. It was real and tangible. That's why he says that he is the brightness or radiance of the glory of God. It's as if, like, you had a light bulb that was kind of dim, and then all of a sudden you turned it on higher, and it got brighter. That's what it is. The glory of God got brighter when Jesus came. That's the first argument. It's the first argument in the book of Hebrews that Christ is better than the Old Testament way of religion, is that you remember how dim it was back then? We, we knew something was coming, but we didn't have really an idea what was going to happen. We just kind of, we knew something really big and really good was going to happen, and that's about it. But now, we have the brightness of the glory of God. First argument in the book of Hebrews for the superiority of Christ. Then he says that Christ is the exact imprint or the engraving of his nature. What's the nature of God? God is good, loving, generous, protecting, merciful, jealous, just, angry, sometimes pretty hateful. That's okay, right? Remember how many times, remember what we talked about Sunday, that it is... Um, it is not necessarily a bad thing to say that God hates sinners. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? That God hates sinners. But the people that the Bible says God hates are the people that know who he is, know the truth about him, and don't care. When you think about a sinner in that light, 
That's a different, that, that changes your, your thinking on it, right? All right, so he is the exact engraving of his nature. The word imprint there is engraving. It's the same word that they would have used to make a coin. Did y'all see that they think that they have found um, Pontius Pilate's ring? You seen that? Yeah. They think, they, they think they've seen Pontius Pilate's, they, they think they've found Pontius Pilate's personal ring. It's pretty amazing. We've had Pontius Pilate's, you know, coins forever, right? Um, in fact, a good friend of mine who is um, editor, one of the editors of House to House, Heart to Heart, um, is a coin nerd. I don't know what they're called, but that's what I call him. What? I don't speak in tongues. I'm sorry. I don't believe that happens anymore. No. <laughs> a numismatist? Numismatist. Okay, next time I see him, I got to tell him. How did you know? Anyway, I don't want to know. He, he is one. He are one. Anyways, so he's one of those. He has a coin with Pontius Pilate's head on it. Okay? They would put the face of the people that were leading on their coins. That never happens anymore, right? You never put the face of famous leaders on coins and dollar bills and things anymore. Yeah, we do it every, t- yeah, every single bill we have, right? Yeah, same concept. So when you think of that word, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Think about like a quarter. When you look at a quarter, whose face is on it? George Washington. If you want to know what George Washington looked like from the side, probably looked a little, they they probably photoshopped him a little bit for the quarter, right? But he's the exact imprint. Now, in that time, you know, we laugh about they might have photoshopped George Washington for the quarter, but in that time, that's really what happened, right? Have you all noticed that every statue of a government, a Roman leader from that time period looks pretty much like the same person? You know why? They just, they just made stuff up. Like we, aren't, we aren't exactly sure that Pontius Pilate's face looked exactly like that coin. Because they would fudge it a little bit. And, you know, if he wasn't that attractive, let's make him a little bit more attractive because we're going to put his face on all the coins. And if someone from another country wants, you know, finds our coin, we want them to think that we have the most handsome leaders, right? But he's the exact imprint of his nature. So that's kind of a little jab at the Greek way of doing things when he says that he's the exact imprint. There's no, there's no Photoshop here. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making perfection, purification for our sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high, right? And then in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is about to die, and what does he see? Christ standing at the right hand of God, right? So, he, he's there. When did he get there? What does the verse say, verse 3? When did Jesus get to the right hand of the majesty on high? After having made purification for our sins, right? He made purification from our sins on the cross, but then also at the resurrection. I heard probably one of the most powerful 
statements, quotes I've ever heard today. And I texted a bunch of my friends about it. And they thought, well, yeah, that's a good quote. But anyways. But it was this. If there's no resurrection, this is, this is from a guy who grew up, he was not German, but he grew up in England during World War II. Okay, so that, the setting of the quote makes it a lot more powerful. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, all we have is another dead Jew. We have millions of those. It's true, right? It's true. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't take away any of the pain and that sort of thing. I'm not trying to lessen the Holocaust by any means, but, but that's true. If, I mean, how many people of the Jewish religion have died throughout the centuries? Persecute, Jews have been persecuted for a long time in horrible, horrible ways. But the difference between him and the rest of them was he was resurrected, right? So after having made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So not just the death, but also the resurrection, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, but in also, you know, there's kind of a, a, a level of the sovereignty of God in that, in the Old Testament at least, in that the reason why they're so persecuted in the Old Testament is because people hated them. But who gave those people the authority to hate them? God, right? Because of their sins, right? So there's a little bit of the sovereignty of God in there. But even then, they were definitely, I mean, there's no way you can get around the idea that a Christian in the New Testament age is, we got targets on our backs, right? Satan doesn't care about a non-Christian at all. Right. Well, yeah, they are. But Satan doesn't care about non-Christians at all, right? And they're, (laughs) his his job's done for for those, right? Right. That's right. Oh, man, that reminds me of that quote. I've told y'all about the girl that I went to college with that fell away from the church and we went to go talk to her. And she said, I'm driving the bus to hell and anybody who wants on is welcome to ride. And every time I hear that, I think about that and I think one day she's going to come back. Anyways, so I'm an optimist when it comes to that. Anyway, so that's true. His job is done, right? And so if you're a Christian, you kind of have a target on your back because we're the ones that he's actively working against. And the same with Jews in, in the Old Testament. He was actively working against them, and, and they gave in a lot, right? So having become, he sat down at the right hand of God, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name did he inherit? What was, what was Jesus' name before he came to the earth? No, what was his name before he came to the earth? He was, in the beginning was the word, right? And then he came to the earth and his name became Emmanuel, right? Or Jesus. Emmanuel means what? Does anybody remember? God, God with us, right? So he got that name. 
But then, well, yes and no. We'll talk about that in just a second. When he dies and he's resurrected, then he becomes the what? The Messiah, the Christ, right? Now, he had that name before because God knew he was going to die on the cross. And with God, there's no real sense of time. But he doesn't become the Christ until he's resurrected, right? In the fullness of that word, right? He doesn't become the Messiah, the Savior, until he saves people, right? So that's the word he's inherited. Now, which is more important, more excellent? Savior, Messiah, or angel, messenger? Which is more important? If somebody... If somebody came in to this building right now and said, it is 7.39 p.m. on January 9th, 2019, at 7.42 p.m. January 9th, 2019, someone is going to walk in this building with a firearm. You fill in the rest. If somebody brought that message, he would be pretty important. Why? Because in three minutes... Guess how many people would be inside this building? None. We got doors all over the place. We will get out of this building. You better believe me. Anyway, so that messenger is pretty important, right? What if somebody comes in and there's a Savior there? That word's different, right? That word's more important, right? So that name, Savior, is above and beyond more important than messenger. And so that's the last part of that verse. His, his name is that he's inherited, Christ, is more excellent than theirs, angels. But now let's go back to the first part of that verse. Having become as much superior to angels as the name is. Having become. Was Jesus not always more superior than the angels? Why did he become more superior than the angels? Okay, let's look back here. Verse number three. What does Jesus uphold the universe by the word of? By the word of his power. We're not talking about the nature of God. Right? He's already talked about the nature here. He transitioned to talk about the power of God. So how did Christ, when he went to God and sat down at the right hand of God, how did he, then did he become more powerful than the angels? In Job chapters 1 and 2, something happens in the throne room of God. Do you remember what happens at the beginning of the book of Job? A meeting between who? The angels and God, right? But when Jesus is on earth, he can't go to the throne room of God, can he? Doesn't have that power. Right? He keeps saying, when I leave and I go there, then the Holy Spirit will come. I don't, I don't have the ability to go to him right now. That's what he's talking about. That That is the, I believe, that is the power that Jesus gave away when he came to earth. He didn't give away any of his nature He's still 100% God when he's on earth. He didn't give away any of his knowledge because he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He knew, you know, he knew 
everything. He's all-knowing. He didn't give away his ability to bend the physical universe because he, he did miracles all the time, right? Not all the time. He did a lot of miracles, right? He didn't do miracles in every instance. But the one thing he couldn't do while on earth was go to God. Why? Why could Jesus not go to God's throne room when he was on earth? Well, because he hadn't finished the test, but he was what? He was man. Raise your hand if right now you can go to the throne room of God. No. If you raise your hand, you're crazy, right? No, you can't. We don't have that ability. That's why when we die and we're resurrected, then we can, right? That's the importance of our resurrection. That's why we become like him, because then we can go to him, right? So, when he ascended and and sat down at the right hand of God, he became more superior than the angels in power because now he could go to God and he could do all the other things that he could already do, right? But he became as superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is more excellent than their name because they're the messenger, which is important, but he's the savior, which is even more important, right? All right, verse number five. Now, here's where it gets a little weird. And we don't have time. We have two minutes. All right. Stop right there. We'll pick up with number five, verse five next week, because I'm not going to try to get into this. This gets super confusing. So, any questions about what we talked about before, verses one through four? Jesus, he set the stage that... Now, we have Jesus. Everybody knows, everyone who reads the book knows who we have, who he is. They're all Christians. So then he starts in verse 3 to make the the points that Jesus is superior. He is the brightness of the glory of God. He is not the photoshopped. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And when he went to heaven, he he gained the ability to go to the presence of God which he couldn't do when he was here. But he still had all the other powers. So I I believe that's the power that he gave up. That's what he gave up when he came to earth, is that he spent eternity as being, I mean, he is, he's part of God, right? He spent eternity being with his, with the other parts of God, the Father and the Spirit. And then when he came here, He spent 33 years without the ability to be with them. Right? That's that's what he gave up, is the ability to be with God, be with the other parts of God. Now, that doesn't mean it's like a triune God, that there's three different gods, but that their nature is so one. That's why he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. Because if you see him, you've seen the Holy Spirit. And we always talk about if you've seen Jesus, you've seen who? The Father, right? But if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Holy Spirit, too. I think a lot of times we kind of, because we're so scared of the, the squishy ideas about the Spirit, that we kind of push him to the back because we're scared of, scared of him, right? Um, but anyway, so that's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Next week we'll talk about verse 5 and the rest of the chapter. Um, because I don't want to get into these, the, these quotations from the Old Testament without 
really enough time to go and look at them. So, all right, any questions? Good deal. Let's go ahead and have a little break. Um, the kids will be coming in here in just a minute. Thank y'all. Appreciate it.